My name is Bobby Tibbles. I'm one of the elders here at Calvary Bible, and I count it a great joy and a privilege to get to read the text with you this morning. So, the bulletin says 1 through 18 of Matthew chapter 1. It's actually going to be 1 through 6 and 12 through 18, or through 17 rather, excuse me. So, if you want to grab your Bibles and follow along, verses 1 through 6 and 12 through 17. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok was the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad. Iliad was the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the word of God. May you bless the reading of it. Some of you are wondering what in the world does that have to do with Christmas, but we'll uh, we'll get into it here in just a few moments. Um, but I'm Byron Brasso, the pastor here at Calvary. If you have any questions about our church, uh, feel free to see me after the service today. The, today is the first week in a three-week series on Christmas that we're going to be looking at. Today is obviously Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and we're looking at the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, before I get too far into it, the mission of Calvary Bible Church is to guide all people to become biblical followers of Christ through intentional relationships. That's kind of what we're here to do. And uh, part of being a biblical follower of Christ is understanding doctrine, understanding what you believe. So in the month of January, as I've said last week, uh, we're going to be studying systematic theology in January. We're going to be looking at angels and demons and spiritual warfare. Uh, and so that'll be an interesting subject matter to discuss. But, you know, I really wrestled this week on what to kind of share for my first sermon on Christmas. And preaching on Christmas is actually a really difficult subject to talk about because, I mean, I mean we... Okay. It's not a difficult subject because we all know Christmas, but that's why it's difficult. It's because Christmas in our culture specifically has just kind of become just blah. You know, we look around at the city, we look at all the nativity scenes, and believe it or not, they're pretty much all wrong. Okay, all right. So the three wise men weren't there, and Jesus probably wasn't born in a stable but in a cave. But we just kind of become accustomed to the story of Christmas, and typically where preachers would go on uh, the first uh, first sermon series on, on Christmas would be Luke chapter 2, but for some reason I fell on my head this week and I decided to read a bunch of names. Um, but those names in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 is probably one of the most important 
passages in all the Bible. But the Christmas story has become a little bit drab or dry, but Christmas should be far from it. Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Son of God and the Messiah has come and he has arrived. Amen? That Christmas is not just some story that we tell to little children on Christmas morning, but it is the arrival of the Son of God in babe form. What people don't realize oftentimes in our culture is that the story of Christmas far begins far more further back than the city and the town of Bethlehem. Matter of fact, the story of Christmas began in the Garden of Eden. And what we see is throughout the Old Old Testament, we see the picture of Christmas kind of become clearer and clearer and clearer. Jesus in his life fulfilled 330 different prophecies in the Old Testament. So as we go through the Old Testament, as the Jews would read from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through the end of Malachi, that the picture of the Messiah would become clearer and clearer and clearer. And when we come into Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 1, in a sense, are the corrective lenses to the Jewish nation. That for the first time, based on Matthew chapter 1, that they can see that Jesus is truly the Messiah. It gives them 20-20 vision to understand exactly who the Messiah is. And it puts together all of the stories and all the prophecies of the Old Testament. But what does it do for us? You know, what does Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, how does it affect our life today? How many of you, let me just start off with a question. How many of you have ever been in an argument before? Okay. That, that, guess what? That makes you normal. Okay. Um, but how many of you have ever been in an argument and that you know you're right. I mean, not that you're stubbornly think, think you're right, but you know you're right. You know, tracking with me? Okay, all right. All the stubborn people like Byron just raise their hand. Okay, there we go. We all have been in arguments where we have, you know, all of the evidence, so to speak, in our corner. How do you fight differently? How do you argue differently when you know, not say, but when you know you're right? That's what I think Matthew chapter 1 does for us today. It gives us the proof to know that Jesus truly is the Savior, the Son of God, and the Messiah that has been prophesied in Genesis chapter 3 and on throughout the whole Old Testament. Well, we see, if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Uh, This passage is far more than just a list of names. I mean, it is a list of names, but it also gives us something even today to help us kind of live out our faith. How does a drab set of names in the beginning of the New Testament affect our life today? Uh, As you can probably tell, Matthew chapter 1 is Jesus' family tree. It is the genealogy. It is Jesus' forefathers. And when we read the Bible, let's just be honest here, um, we just kind of skip this portion. Anybody else can do that? You know, if we're reading through the Bible in, 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 in a year time frame, we get to Matthew chapter 1 and we just kind of just skip over it and we kind of put our snooze button on and just kind of sleep. But as I said earlier, Matthew chapter 1 is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. And if you were here last week, we finished up the book of Malachi, and then we are literally turning the page and beginning the New Testament with Matthew chapter 1. And to be honest with you, I didn't originally plan to do that, but I was just kind of 
looking at the Christmas story, I'm going, okay, what do I, what do I talk about for three weeks at the end of December? What, what can I do that's kind of different and new? And, and we got something new, and hopefully it doesn't put you guys to sleep. And what we see in Matthew chapter 1 is far more than just the genealogy of Jesus' life, but actually gives us something even today, and it gave the Jewish nation in the first century the ability to understand what was happening in the New Testament. So today we're in Matthew chapter 1. Let us very quickly set the stage for our discussion just so that we know exactly what we're talking about. Matthew was written by Matthew, Jesus' disciple, who is what? Who is a tax collector in the first century. And what we see is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels, which means they are seeing with or seeing together. It means they all see the life of Christ all kind of from the same angle, from the same vantage point. But what makes Matthew unique in a sense is that Matthew is written by a Jew to a Jewish audience. That is one of the reasons why Matthew has so many Old Testament quotations. And the goal, the purpose of the book of Matthew is found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, that the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. Matthew is written to Jews. And then one scholar says this, A prominent feature of the book of Matthew is its emphasis upon Jesus Christ as a messianic king promised by Old Testament prophets. This gospel appeals directly to Jews, Jewish messianic expectation. No other gospel connects the story of Jesus so closely to the Old Testament as Matthew does. So the book of Matthew is written by a Jew to a Jew and really to skeptics in the first century who are trying to understand who this Jesus guy is. But keep in mind, first off, two different questions. Question number one, is Matthew 1, 1 through 18 are the corrective lenses to the Jewish nation in the first century. But what does it prove to them, number one? But number two, how does this list of names affect our life today? So if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 begins the list of names and it is, this is probably one of the most important verses in all of the scripture because it links the Old Testament with the New. What does it say? It says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Literally says, the record, it means the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, how many of you have already, already believed this, right? We already believe here today that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But what I want you to do this morning is I want you to look at this verse through the lens of a non-believing Jew in the first century. How would they see verse 1? Just set aside your, your, your Christian framework and, and all the years of being in church and understanding all the doctrine and all the things that you know and understand. Set that aside for just a second. And imagine you're a Jewish person in the first century. You've heard of this guy named Jesus. You understand he performed some miracles. He had some disciples. You might have even heard he was crucified on a cross. And then you read verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. If you are a Jew in the first century, you have two different reactions, I imagine. I'm not Jewish and I'm not in the first century. Um, <laughs> number one reaction is what? Hallelujah! Amen! Praise Jesus! 
They wouldn't say praise Jesus, baby. But they are rejoicing. They would say hallelujah, praise the Lord, that the Messiah has come. The Messiah that they have been looking for for 2,000 years since the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that this Messiah, the 330 prophecies that we have been predicted in the Old Testament have come to pass. He has been fulfilled. Hallelujah, praise Jesus. That would be reaction number one. Reaction number two would be prove it. Prove to me, if I'm a Jew in the first century, that this guy named Jesus truly is the Messiah. And the first proof you see up here is that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Check and check. What I want to do this morning is, as we go through the names, I'm just going to pick out four different names of four different prophecies that that father of Jesus and Jesus being from their, that line proves that he is the Messiah. So there's four different names. I'm not going to look at all thousand names this morning to hopefully not put you all to sleep. But what I do want to point out real quick is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, right from the beginning of the book of Matthew, right from the beginning of the New Testament, that phrase right there, Jesus the Messiah, kind of pops off the page. Why? The word Christ in the New Testament is the Greek, essentially, transliteration of the Hebrew word for Messiah. When you see Christ in the New Testament, think Messiah. When Paul says the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying Master, whose name is Jesus or Joshua, and he is the Messiah. The Messiah to a Jew in the first century would just be an absolutely enormous title. The name Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Meshua. The word Meshua in the Old Testament is used 38 times, and the word Meshua means the anointed one. But as the Old Testament unfolds, it it really becomes clearer and clearer and clearer to the Jewish nation that the Messiah, they don't know who it is quite yet, must be a messianic king. A messianic king, which is why on Palm Sunday they said Hosanna. When Jesus rides into the city on a colt of a donkey, they're expecting him to become the messianic king. And when he does not fulfill their wishes, they then crucify him because he doesn't fulfill what they expect. To a Jew in the first century, the most important function of the Messiah is that he will be a messianic king. And now he will usher in the kingdom of God on earth and reign. So verse 1 is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible because it correlates that this man named Jesus, who we all know about, is the Messiah. And we will look at four different prophecies, four different fathers that Jesus had to be from and how it fulfills this promise that he is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then notice here in verse 2, you have another list of names. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. How does Jesus, being a descendant of Abraham, prove that Jesus is the Messiah? Let me say that again. How does Jesus, being a descendant of Abraham, prove that Jesus is the Messiah? It proves that Jesus is the Messianic seed. If you have your note, it proves that Jesus is the Messianic seed. But better yet, what does this prove to me today? How does Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, how does it affect our life today? The Old Testament is clear that the Messiah must come from the line of Abraham, must be a Jew. Abraham is what? The father of Israel, and from him would come a great nation. Kind of give your Old Testament history a revamp real quick. 
Abraham is introduced in Genesis chapter 11. The Abrahamic covenant is then introduced in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It is then signed, in a sense, by God in Genesis chapter 15, and then is reaffirmed in Genesis 18 and 22. And the Abrahamic covenant consists of three different pieces. If you know your Old Testament history, it, can, it consists of land, seed, and blessing. The Abrahamic covenant is three pieces. It is land, seed, and blessing. That when the Abrahamic covenant is signed by God as he passes through the carcasses. If you remember that story in Genesis chapter 15, it is signed, it is ratified, it becomes permanent. In a sense, it was permanent in Genesis 12. But we'll, just for the sake of clarity and simplicity, God ratifies, he signs the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 15. But what I find interesting in Genesis 15 is that the land peace of the Abrahamic covenant is introduced. It says that the nation of Israel, this great nation that will come from the body of Abraham, that they will inherit land from the Nile River to the great river of the Euphrates. That piece of land that encompasses Syria and Jordan and Iraq, that hunk of land is promised to the nation of Israel. Why is that significant? It's because the nation of Israel has not ever inherited that portion of land, which is one of the reasons why I believe that Israel still has a place in God's redemptive plan for mankind. That's the reason why I, one of the reasons why I also believe that Israel has not replaced the church. It's because Israel has never inherited the full land piece of the Abrahamic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant, number one, is land. Number two is blessing, that God will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse him, which is one of the many reasons why I believe that we should support Israel today. But then number three is that there is a seed, the seed portion of the Abrahamic covenant that God will make through Abraham a great nation. And we see in Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, that Jesus Christ is the seed and this is what it says in Galatians 3, 16 through 18. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God. Dude, that is like a huge phrase. But anyway. So as to nullify the promise, nor if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So they know that the Messiah must come from the line of Abraham and that the Messiah is the seed of Abraham. And what we see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, is that Jesus is from the line of Abraham. Therefore, he is the Messianic seed. He is the son of David, son of Abraham. And to a Jew in the first century is check mark number one, first box. That you must prove, if you want to say that Jesus is the Messiah, he must be a son of Abraham, which we see in verse 2. But I want you to also notice here, so not only is Jesus the Messianic seed because his father is Abraham, but I want you to notice who the promised son of Abraham is. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Now listen, if you ever doubt that uh, the Bible is truth, just look at current affairs. Amen? The reason why Islam and Jews essentially hate each other today is because of this verse right here. 
If you remember the story in the Old Testament, Abraham got impatient because he was old and without child. So then his wife gives Abraham her servant named Hagar, and he has a son named Ishmael. Remember that story? So you have Ishmael, a son of Abraham, and you have Isaac, a son of Abraham. Guess what? Islam also traces their heritage back to Abraham as well, if you did not know that. But they trace their heritage through Ishmael, and Christianity and Jews trace their heritage through Isaac. So the reason there is conflict between Islam and Judaism is because of one man's sinful decision. Uh, talk about consequences for your actions, okay? Lord, I pray that nothing like that happens as my legacy from 5,000 years later, okay? One man's slip in judgment causes conflict even to today between Islam and Judaism and Christianity in a sense. So how does Jesus, being a descendant of Abraham, prove that Jesus is Messiah? It proves that he is the Messianic seed. Okay. But then notice verse 3. There's another prophecy in verse 3 that many of us probably don't even know. We don't even know it's in the Old Testament, but it's absolutely important. Notice verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. How does being a descendant of Judah prove that he is the Messiah? It proves that he is the Messianic king. It proves that he is the Messianic king. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. But the better question is, how does Matthew chapter 1 affect my life today? The reason Jesus had to be of the line of Judah. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had how many sons? He had 12 sons in the 12 tribes of Israel. So he could have had a 12, you know, 1 in 12 chance of being born of any other son. But God arranged the history of the world so that Jesus would be from the line of Judah. Why did Jesus have to be from the line of Judah? It proves that he is the messianic king. If you have your Bible, go to Genesis 49. If you have your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 49. I don't have it up here intentionally speaking. But Genesis 49 tells me why the Messiah comes from the line of Judah. Genesis 49, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 11. Genesis 49, verse 9, starts this. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. Notice verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And notice the end of verse 10. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Verse 11. He ties his foal to the vine. What does that sound like, guys? And his donkey's colt. What does that sound like again? It sounds like Zechariah 9.9 to me. And his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garment in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Okay, wait a second. That sounds like... Palm Sunday, and it sounds like what? The crucifixion. But if you notice in verse 10, the Messiah has to be king. Why? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Genesis 49, verse 10, is the reason why the Jewish nation in the first century are convinced that the Messiah must be a king. Because a king comes 
And what accompanies the king? Shiloh, a place of peace. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And he, he ties his foal to the vine. Think back to Palm Sunday. What are the nation of Israel, what do they say? Hosanna. That they, when Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey, what are they expecting him to be? They're expecting him to be the Messiah because here alone in Genesis 49, he fulfills that he's basically riding on a colt of a donkey, that in Zechariah 9.9. And they are expecting the Messianic king to rule and to usher in peace, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. This is why the Jewish nation are convinced that the Messiah is a king and must kick out the Roman Empire and establish his rule on earth. Um, And when Jesus doesn't do exactly what they want, then they crucify him. What they didn't see is that Jesus, yes, he is the Messianic king, but he also first, in his first coming, had to die for the sins of the world. He had to crush his heel on the head of the serpent. He had to fulfill Isaiah 53 to pay for our sins so we could be reconciled to God through his blood. And that the second coming will be when he is the messianic king ushering in Shiloh and all the peoples of the world will bow to him and rule. The fulfillment, the prophecy, the reason Jesus had to be from the line of Judah is because he had to be the messianic king. And the fulfillment of Genesis 49 is found in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. Revelation 5, 5 is the fulfillment of Genesis 49 because it says this. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Jesus, or excuse me, Israel crucified Jesus when he didn't meet their expectations. They thought that he might be the Messiah, and they understood the Messiah must be a king. And when he did not fulfill their exact expectations, they set him aside, and then they crucified him. Um, Can I just say something off the beaten path a little bit? Be careful, friends, not to kick God out of your life when he doesn't fulfill your expectations. Be careful not to kick God out of your life when he doesn't fulfill your expectations. When we follow the Lord, we expect our life to be a certain way. You know, Lord, I'll follow you. I know it's going to be painful. I know that. I know it's going to be difficult. I know that it's the narrow road and that I must deny myself, take him across and follow me. But, you know, you, you know that in theory, okay? But when it becomes reality in your life. It is so easy to kick God out of your life when he doesn't meet your exact expectations. I've seen so many Christians in my life be just like the nation of Israel. That they have this idea of the way their life should go, and when it doesn't meet that... Abraham proves that Jesus is messianic seed. Judah proves that he is the messianic king. But I want you to notice again in verse 3... Uh, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. I want you to notice some names as I read them. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Now, some of this just doesn't make any sense. It's a little bit drab, but I find a key idea here. 
Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Wait, who's that? Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Okay, what did you notice there? Notice all of the imperfections in Jesus' lineage. Did you track that? You know, Judah had a child with his daughter-in-law named Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. And to him, to her was born two sons. And one of those sons was the forefather of the perfect Messiah, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Wait, who else is on the lineage of Jesus? Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who's that? She was a prostitute in Joshua chapter 2. And who's her son? Boaz, who we see in the book of Ruth. Who else do we see? We see David, who was tempted by lust. He saw a pretty lady bathing outside. I don't really know why she's doing that. He's not where he's supposed to be. And then he impregnates her. And to cover it up, he kills her husband. And then he hides it for nine months. Because it took nine months for the child to be born. And then the prophecy of Nathan comes to pass. You know, friends, all of these people in this list are flawed. Just like you and me. Let me ask a question. We're all flawed. Amen? Thank, we're all flawed. Amen. That's why we all need Jesus. Amen? Um, but what does that tell you about God? And what does it tell you about living life for him? That God uses flawed people for his will and for his kingdom. But what is required of us? Hebrews chapter 11 is faith. It requires faith, a willingness to serve him and to follow him by faith. If you feel like you aren't qualified to really serve God and make a difference for his kingdom of God, then just go look in the line of Jesus, friends. There's a prostitute. There's a guy who had two kids with his daughter-in-law. There's a guy, a murderer. Uh, God can any, use any one of us if we are willing to serve God in faith. But then notice, so Jesus has to be from the line of Abraham to be the Messianic seed. Jesus has to be of the line of Judah to be the Messianic king. But he also has to be from the line of David to be the Messianic king forever. Because the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 must be fulfilled by the Messiah. Notice in verse 6, Jesus was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah. You notice here, Jesus is from the line of David. The Messiah had to be from the line of David to establish an eternal throne. The Messiah had to fulfill 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. It says this, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, this is called the Davidic covenant, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. Okay, wait, let me say that again. I will raise up your descendant. It's singular. After you, 
you who will come forth from you and will I will establish his kingdom, not their kingdom, but his kingdom. And verse 13 of Second Samuel 7, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What's the problem with that? <laughs> I'll talk about that. Just what's the problem with the Davidic covenant? Keep in mind, friends, as we go through Matthew chapter 1, and the Jews do not see this list of names like we do. We read the Bible cover to cover, and we get to Matthew 1, and we just sleep a little bit. We just kind of put our brain on cruise control. They don't see it that way. They see this list of names as, oh my goodness, this guy named Jesus may truly be that Messiah, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Because the Messiah had to be from Abraham, had to be from Judah, and had to be from the line of David. Because the Messiah is a king. Only a king is from the lineage of David. But there's one problem. What's the problem in the Davidic covenant? It says, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What's the problem with that statement? No human lives on earth forever. That's the problem. So wait a second. A a descendant will establish the throne forever. So imagine you're David and you're living in 1000 B.C. And you rejoice in the fact that God will establish your kingdom forever. Um, but how it, is that possible? I'm, I'm confused. Wait, because people die. What does that mean? It means that the Messiah must be more than just a human being. Track with me on that. Notice in verse 12, it shows us. That Jesus is more than human, but he is fully divine and fully human when he was here on earth. It's the hypostatic union. He was all God and all man. And the prophecy that he had to fulfill to be a, a, the God, the Son of God, is found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. And there's a very familiar name we're going to read here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. And you probably, if you were here during the, that particular minor prophet, you'll probably remember exactly where I'm going with this. Because the Messiah had to be the seed, had to be the king, had to rule forever. And then also, because he has to rule forever, he has to be God. Tracking? Verse 12. After deportation to Babylon, Jaconia. Became the father of Shutiel. Shutiel, the father of Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel was the grandson of the last king of Judah. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. And Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob. Man, I can say some names I can actually pronounce. It, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Notice how he begins the treatise in Matthew chapter 1 and how he ends, right? He is Jesus the Messiah, and at the end he says, who is called the Messiah? The messianic symbol, the Meshua, the anointed one in the Old Testament, has to be the seed, has to be a king forever and if a king has to be forever then he must be divine 
Where is the Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah is divine, that he is the Son of God, and that he is God himself? Haggai chapter 2, verse 23. If you have your Bible, Haggai chapter 2, verse 23. I don't have it marked, so I'm going to have to flip there real quick. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. There we go. Okay. I went through the Old Testament books with you real quick. I had a memory off the top of my head. Haggai, chapter 2, verse 23. So keep in mind, as we were talking, he speaks to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and he tells them this, verse 23. I'll begin at verse 1. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to... Shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the powers of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow chariots and the riders and the horses and the riders will go down. Everyone by the sword of one another. On that day, verse 23, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shittil, my servant, declares the Lord. I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So Zerubbabel, because of his obedience, will be like the signet ring. The signet ring is what? It is the signature of the day. It is the sign of royalty. So Zerubbabel will be like the signet ring, but who is the signet ring of the New Testament? Who is, in a sense, the likeness of God himself? It is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. But we would say he's not just the likeness of God, but he is the homoousion. He is of the same substance as God. He is God himself. He is not just a picture of God. He's not God's greatest creation. He is not a man that God ordained or adopted to be divine, but he is divine himself from eternity past to eternity future, neither created nor made. He is of the same substance. The prophecy that we see in Haggai chapter 2 verse 23 is that Zerubbabel will be like the signet ring. That there will be a descendant from the line of Zerubbabel that will be God essentially himself. So the Messiah, the Old Testament picture that we see is that the Messiah had to be the seed, had to be the king forever and had to be divine, must be God himself and in the likeness of God. How does Jesus being the descendant of Abraham, Judah, David, Zerubbabel prove that he is the Messiah? Uh, keep in mind, friends, that there are more than 30, 330 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life, okay? Uh, prophecies like Jesus was betrayed by a friend, he was betrayed for 30 shekels of silver, that his clothes would be divided in Psalm 22, Psalm 22, 1, prophesied the very words that he would say on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see other prophecies of the Old Testament seen in Genesis 3, verse 15, and so forth, that there are 330 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, and I had time to talk about four. And it all comes to the lineage of Jesus. How does Jesus being descendant of Abraham, Judah, David, and Zerubbabel prove he is the Messiah, proves this, that Jesus is the messianic, divine king forever that's the message in matthew chapter one that's the message that i see to a jew in the first century 
You know, that, that he truly is the anointed one that has been prophesied from eternity past to eternity future that has come to be the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Jesus is the messianic divine king forever. Okay. You know, um, one of the difficult parts of my theological framework, okay, let me just say something really quick. I, I'm a dispensationalist. If you don't know what that is, cool. And if you have misconceived notions that were heretics or something, just come talk to me after service. I'll set you straight. I had somebody accuse me of that one time, and I just kind of totally, anyways, smashed it. Okay, moving on. It wasn't here. So, okay. So, um, one of the difficult parts of being, in a sense, a dispensationalist who, who doesn't believe that the church has replaced Israel is the first thing you have to do is then understand what does it mean for the audience then, and then and only then can you then transfer it to us today. So, a Jew in the first century that sees Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, what does it do for them? You know, when they see that Jesus is, is the son of all of these people, what does it apply, how does it apply to them? To a Jew in the first century, it gives them confirmation. It gives them confirmation. It confirms that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies since the Garden of Eden. To a Jewish person, Matthew chapter 1 brings confirmation. But what does it do for us today? You know? I mean, if you're a Christian, and you've been in church for any length of time, then you probably, none of this is probably really new. You might have learned something a little bit new today, maybe with the Lion of Judah thing, or something like that. But, you know, nothing's really new. I mean, you probably believe that Jesus is already the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God. And, you know, so how does this Matthew 1, this big list of names, how does it actually apply to our life? I'll give you my story. Um, I was really wrestling with what to preach today. And I picked the most <laughs> drab passage, maybe, but the most important passage in the New Testament. And, you know, and as I was just meditating on this passage and all these Messianic prophecies have been fulfilled... You know, I, I literally woke up one morning and I just had the idea. It gives me confidence. It gives me confidence that what I believe is true. Going back to my illustration in the very beginning, I asked you how many people have ever been in an argument. And then I asked you the second question, how many of you have ever been in an argument and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are right? You argue a little bit differently when you know you are right. You argue what? With confidence, okay? Maybe a little bit too much, and you kind of stick it to your spouse a little bit, okay? Maybe that's what you do. But you argue with confidence. Friends, listen to me. You can't, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, that Jesus fulfilled 330 prophecies of the Old Testament... That Jesus proves with his life that he's the messianic seed, that he is the messianic king forever, and that he is divine. That tells me that I can have confidence that the Bible is true and that my faith in Jesus Christ is true. Can I just share something real quick? Um, How many hours of your week do you live in the world? You live in this world 168 hours every week. And what does the world do to your faith? It slowly chips away at your faith. 
what it does is it says, okay, well, you know, you really can't believe there's a God, can you? Big chip. You really can't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, chip. You really can't believe in the Bible that it's true. Isn't it full of myths and wonders and mysteries, chip. And as we live the 168 hours a week that we have every single day and every single week and every single month and every single year, the world slowly chips away at our faith. And it makes us question things that we have come to believe that are true. Can you really believe that Jesus is real? Can you really believe that a God you can't see is real? This is what I want to do, friends, today. This is my application. I want to give us the confidence that what we believe about Jesus Christ being the Son of God is true, and it gives us confidence to believe it. I want you to take all of those little pieces being chipped away from your faith, and I want you to kind of gather them together, and I want you to look at your faith as a whole and just say, What I believe is true because I see it in Matthew chapter 1. I see it in the Old Testament. If Jesus would have just dropped on the scene in the book of Matthew, you know, it would be easier to doubt. But we have so much proof in the Old Testament that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. Matthew 1 gives me confidence that what we believe is true. Amen? What we believe is true. We can have confidence in that, friends. That's the application. To a Jew, it confirms that Jesus is Messiah. To us today, if you're a believer, it gives us confidence that what we believe is the, is the truth of God. That's the application in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is a messianic divine king forever. If you want to know more about Jesus Christ, if you want to know more about why he died for you, or how he offers you eternal life. If you have questions about Jesus Christ, if you're not sure of your relationship with him, I would encourage you to see me after the service today because Jesus Christ came the first time to die for the sins of the world, to fulfill the prophecy Isaiah 53, and he comes again to fully fulfill uh, his messianic divine king forever, to sit on the throne as we see in Romans, Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, and to reign eternally over the world in perfection and usher in a new heaven and new earth. That's the Jesus Christ that we believe in today. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, I know that there's a lot of names, a lot of kind of content, but I, I pray for us this morning that we would walk out more confident in what we believe. Lord, that we live in a world that causes us to doubt all the things that we take for granted, that causes us to question the little things of our life and of our faith. And I pray that just Matthew 1 would just reassure us of what we know to be true already. It would, it would bolster us. It would build us up. And Lord, I pray that we would have people in our life that would remind us and give us uh, community and relationship to encourage us in our faith. And Lord, I thank you for this church. I just thank you for, um, Lord, I just thank you for their faithfulness and their generosity and their, their kindness to me over the last six years. And I just thank you for their friendship. Lord, continue to be with us as a church. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to have the spirit of unity, which we have currently. Uh, Bless the rest of our service today. In Jesus' name, amen.